What a difference a word makes. The difference between could and win. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Conklin. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, things are great. Uh, Golly, today's podcast I think you'll find really interesting. Uh, in fact, I think I will guarantee it. I will I will double your money back on what you've spent downloading today's podcast if you don't think today's podcast is interesting. That's quite an offer. I'm I'm willing to give it to you. Okay, let me adjust everything. Get the mic just right. Get everything. Here we go. Yeah, okay. Everything's looking good. Yeah, so today's podcast we're going to talk about um, it, it's kind of a it's a cut on the fact that we Probably put too much emphasis. No, that's the wrong word. We probably give preferential thought, not too much emphasis, but preferential thought to the notion of predicting and preventing accidents. And in doing so, we suck intellectual energy away from our ability to respond and control accidents. And um, this is a struggle that all of us deal with, at least in this business, no matter what. If you're a safety person, medical, pilot, computer reliability, DevOps, whatever you do, the, the allure of prevention is so seductive, it's so sexy, that it sort of gets in the way of understanding a balanced approach. And maybe the best way to have this conversation is to really talk a little bit about a guy named Steve Scott, who's the who's a human performance person. Now, Steve's really interesting for a bunch of reasons. One is that he comes out of a strong, I mean, absolutely fundamental operations background. He's an operator. So he's not a safety guy. He's not a psychologist. He's not an engineer. He's an operator. But he's an operator who's deep-dived, if I can use the past tense of that word, into understanding how humans perform in the systems and really how to look at kind of this new view, this safety two thing we all talk about. He's, he's remarkable. And he's remarkable because he's smart and sharp, but he's also remarkable because the, the point of view he has, he represents, I think is a much richer point of view. And he's going to really push us here on the difference between could happen and will happen. And that one word makes a huge difference because could happen puts us in that prevention state. We're managing probability. We're managing the potential for an event to take place. Will happen puts us in that response state and says, when it happens, what is it that will keep you from dying? And that is a really, really good way to look at this and understand this. I, I think this podcast is great. Things are great here. Uh, lots of travel. This podcast was recorded on the coast of uh, Norway, uh, sitting outside of a beautiful little guest house around a picnic table. So there's going to be a little funky noises once in a while in and out here. And the recording quality is not, you know, studio but I think the content of this is amazing. You will hear a little buzzing sound. And if you don't think your cell phone has energy, set it next to your microphone someday and see what happens. So there were a couple of us uh, sitting around a table, and we all had our phones up on the table. 
which is what we do, sadly. I'm not real proud of that, but that is what we do. And in our zeal to have our phones sitting on the table, you can kind of hear them pinging out once in a while and seeing if somebody got email. In fact, I think you can even hear somebody get email. But uh, sit back and enjoy this. I think you'll uh, uh, this is a good one. This is a really good one. This, this one's going to change the way you think. It certainly changes the way workers think. And we'll talk about it when we come back on the other end. Until then, here is human performance uh, professional Steve Scott and his discussion around um, a question that we should ask workers. What we've asked our leaders to do as a way to engage people on the floor in thinking about where we have robust controls and where we don't is to ask three questions. So what's a task you do that exposes you to a hazard that could result in a serious injury or fatality? And most people have no trouble giving you an example. And so what so, are some examples of it? So the crane operator or the crane electrician today, the high voltage electrician today said working with high voltage. Gotcha. And you said, absolutely. Every time you do it, it exposes you to risk of serious injury or fatality. So the next question is, if you knew with 100% certainty that today you were going to put your hands on a live conductor, what is it that keeps you from being seriously injured or killed? And his immediate response was, we use grounding, I test it with a multimeter before I touch it, and I wear high-voltage gloves. And we said, that's perfect. Those are three things that are going to ensure that even if we screw up the LockTag Verify, we're not going to have an electrocution because we've got those controls that keep you safe. And then the next question is, is that enough? And for his example, yeah, it probably is. He named three real good layers of protection that will probably keep him from being injured if that happens. But then you want to ask people to start thinking about where can you identify a task that exposes you to a hazard where it's not so easy to answer that question. Because some of those things like high voltage, um, working at heights, molten metal, we we, we can very easily think about here's the risk. Here's the hazard, here's the risk, here are the controls. But then get into a discussion about things like mobile equipment, worker on foot. And it's a very different discussion. And that's where we need to start thinking about where we have robust controls in place and where we don't. Why do you think this question works so well? Because workers immediately understand they know where the risk is. They know what the hazards are that they face. They know where the risk is. And where we have robust controls in place, they know what they are. And then if you ask them, is that enough? And you get a funny look and they start scratching their heads. That's where you know you probably don't have good enough controls in place. I'll give you an example. We were talking to operators about the, um, the continuous caster. And one of the tasks they have to do, and it's hard to me, for me to describe that, but they have to sand the wheel, the casting wheel, while it's running. So basically, they have to put their arms, hands, and upper body underneath the ceramic spout through which metal flows to go to the caster. And I asked them, what's the worst thing that could happen? They said, well, that spout could break. And when it does, it would dump molten metal all over me. So then you ask them, okay, so what is it that keeps you from being seriously injured if that happens? And they said, well, it's, it's my PPE, my gloves, and my coat. And then you ask, is that enough? And they look at you, and they, they can't say yes. So there's where you've got an opportunity to say, when that spout breaks, and they immediately say, well, it has, okay? When it breaks while you're under there, 
how do you feel about just having the gloves and the, the coat to keep you from being seriously injured or, or worse? And they don't feel good. So there's an opportunity where we could probably, we could certainly improve the robustness of our controls to protect against that hazard. So I just think it's a really good idea, a really good way for leaders to engage their workers in first identifying where the hazards are, what the controls are, and where we have those good controls, and then where we don't, where the controls we have are not good enough. Because the workers know. Yeah. But the question you ask, it's so finessed. It's so fun. It's so much different than what's the most dangerous thing you do or a plant manager going out there and saying, you know, where's the next place this will screw up? It's it's this intellectual exercise with them that's it's really quite remarkable. It's or really just good. walk up to them while they're on the floor and say, tell me about what you're doing now. What's the worst thing that could happen in performing this task? Do people, and then follow through with the other two questions. Do people get the idea that they can actually have power over managing controls? Sometimes. Um, I think they most often feel like the controls are defined by us, by managers, yeah. and they're kind of the victim yeah, of I agree. our decisions. I agree. So how do we engage workers to feel like that they have a voice, they can manage their controls? I think you asked that question, is that enough? Yeah, I think it's And if that's I think not this enough, question changes everything. then you can have a discussion about, okay, what would be enough? What would make you feel much safer if you knew with 100% certainty that spout was going to break? today so, while you're doing it. So if a plant manager was in there or somebody with power was in there, I would think it would be hard for them to walk out and not be impacted. Like they'd have sort of a duty to act. I mean, I it would seems like it would be malpractice to yeah. not do stuff. So here's the kicker. Why haven't we asked this question the whole time? Why is this kind of a new question? It's a new question to people. Because I, I think one of the things we've realized over the last year is that our full focus has been on not managing the consequence of the incident, but preventing the incident from occurring. So our focus has been on how can we make sure that spout doesn't break versus let's assume that spout is going to break. Do we have the right controls in place when it breaks to make sure we don't seriously injure somebody? So we, we have put most of our eggs in the basket of let's prevent the incident from occurring because it, it almost makes us feel bad to admit incidents are going to occur. We're going to have failures. Let's manage the consequence. I think that's the place we've gotten to. And like we were talking earlier, it needs to be a balance. We need to have a balance between planning the job to reduce the number of incidents and executing the job with a plan that incidents are going to occur. Let's manage the consequence of failure. And we're not good at the latter. So how do we make that balance? I think it's having those conversations very, very often, yeah, listening yeah, to yeah, the operators, yeah. identifying where we don't have robust controls and engaging them in, okay, what are the right controls to make you feel comfortable when you've got to stick your hands and body underneath that spout? That breaks. Yeah. It's, it, when you ask that question, I almost always get the answer, well, we're going to do the things to keep that from occurring. And so you almost have to talk people into, no, you're not. You're not going to every single time do it perfectly. You're not perfect. The tools aren't perfect. The equipment's not perfect. The system's not perfect. So sooner or later, the stars are all going to align. The holes in the cheese are going to line up, and you're going to be under there when that spout breaks. So let's just, just accept that. Now, knowing that that's going to happen today, how do you feel about the controls you have to protect you? 
And we've got to make people comfortable that we've got enough layers of protection in place so that when it, not if it occurs, when it occurs, yes, I'm going to have an incident, but I'm not going to be seriously injured as a result. What would you just say if I think you may have just cracked the code to fatality prevention? Uh, it's real easy for me to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it works for the crap. But... It's, it's, uh, it's a big challenge for our, our leaders to shift our way of thinking in that direction. Because we have we have driven the thought for so long about zero incidents. We are we have been so rigidly focused on zero incidents. But you know, the trend over the last fourteen months has proven to us every plant we go to can show us a dart rate chart that goes down year after year after year after year. But you know, Laurie can show us the data that says our fatalities are at best staying flat, if not increasing. So that just says everything we've done to drive to zero incidents is not having an impact on our fatality rate. The idea that it it we preferentially put our money in prevention, and because we, we get good at prevention, or we think we get good at prevention, it doesn't give us a reason to think about consequence management. That's really bold and pretty controversial. And but it, I think you're right on target. We don't like to hear that. I mean, we're... We're still a company that's that's led largely by engineers, and engineers right. don't like to think about my process is going to fail, my equipment's going to fail, the procedures I wrote are not perfect. So we 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 have this mindset that we can, and we have preached this mindset that zero is possible. We can have zero incidents. So I, I think it's incredibly important that we still keep that as an aspiration, and we still keep doing all those things to make our processes, our procedures, our our equipment are everything more stable, more predictable, more reliable so that we have fewer incidents. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that we're not perfect. Our system's not perfect. Failure is normal. We have to be prepared for it. This is a big change in seeing it's a even, huge change even in, the way it in human performance. Yeah. Because I think human, at least in my mind, human performance started out as an error management tool. And I will just tell you that I think that's a waste of time. I don't even think errors are very interesting. I think that human performance falls in that bucket that you refer to as industrial safety. It's us trying to keep the blue line closer to the black line, right. keep the, the aspiration or the intent closer to the, what's actually happening. And I think it's incredibly important to continue to do everything we can to minimize the number of events yeah. that we have, to have fewer errors, fewer incidents, fewer process upsets, fewer uh, you know quality defects, all those things that we think we get out of human performance, while at the same time acknowledging that nowhere in human performance do we ever say our error rate's going to go to zero. We can do a lot of things to improve it, but as long as we have humans involved in any part of the system, we're going to have errors, we're going to have failures. So it, it, it would be negligent on our part to not plan for those failures to occur. Except I think people really think they'll go to zero. You don't think so? I think we have people in the organization that still believe that's where we should put all our energy Yeah, in driving incidents to zero. Don't you think that's indicative of a belief that the worker's the problem? This whole air reduction thing. The reason I push back on air reduction is because I think it's an elaborate way to say the workers should be more careful. They should have fewer errors. No, because I think it's... I think one of the ways we teach error reduction is that 
at least I hope this is one of the things we teach, is that um, the system that the system that we design, that we as leaders own, the system very frequently puts operators in a position where they are more likely to err. They're more likely to make mistakes. They're more likely to have uh, bad outcomes. So even when, when we can look at something and say the human made an error, we still have to look at the system that we put the human in to say what is it that made it more likely for that person to make that error or that allowed that one human error to have a bad outcome. If we accept the fact that our error rate never goes to zero, then again, it's, it's, it's negligent on our part to bet our process on the fact that humans aren't going to make errors. Right. It, it's, it's kind of dumb. Right. So I think it's, I, I think it's really important to keep doing everything we're doing with human performance to try to reduce our error rate, improve our system, um, so that we make fewer errors, we have fewer incidents, at the same time making our systems more robust so that those errors don't always have a bad outcome. Well, I'm not saying you're saying this, but what I think people hear is that error is choice. No. That if, if, they, if, you, if you chose differently, if you cared more, you'd make less errors. I really do. I mean, I honestly believe that signals out there. I think they're – I'm utterly convinced there are people that believe that. Um, I'm also – because we've heard a lot of this feedback that what we're doing now with talking about planning for failure, critical controls, building in the capacity to fail safely is in direct contradiction to everything we've taught in human performance about driving our error rate down. And I think they are very complementary. I agree. We, we do the things we can to drive our error rate down while acknowledging that our people aren't perfect, our systems are complex, failure is part of being in that complex system. So we have to plan for failure. We have to build the controls in so that we can fail in a safe manner. But that makes error. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm just not sure error matters. I mean, we should argue about it because I've just become less and less interested in error. I just thought it's so normal. It hardly matters. It's normal, but we do know we know a couple things that we've learned from human performance. Number one, the conditions under which people are more likely to err are right. predictable. Right. That's true. So if we can predict those conditions, we can take steps to mitigate. Right? But we never fix those conditions by asking people. So it's like a Norman door. Are you familiar with the Norman door? No. So a Norman door is a door that when you walk up to, you can't tell if you push it or pull it. Okay. I didn't know how to name it. I just learned all this. And so I was teaching class, and there was a door to their brand-new training room. The training room was gorgeous. I had these glass doors, and every single person that snuck out to go to the bathroom and came back in tried to pull it, and it was a push. <laughs> and so every single person did the door wrong. And so we ended up talking in this class about this idea of a Norman door. Now, is that an error, or is that a poorly designed door? Yes. <laughs> See, it's a poorly designed yeah, door that puts a person in a position where they're much more likely to make an error. Except, is it an error if it looks like it pulls? Yes. If, if, they did pulling, something, if it looks like it pulls, then did I make an error when I pulled if it? We if, we, if we define an error, and this is the definition we've taught, that an error is an action or an inaction that unintentionally results in an undesired outcome. So if I go to that door and I push it when I should pull it, uh-huh then I have unintentionally, I have done something that unintentionally resulted in an undesired outcome. Right. The door didn't open. 
So but, yes, it's an error. But but the design of the door right that's the problem. made it very easy for me to make that error. Well, but I would tell you that I think the door's wrong. The worker's not wrong. The operator's not wrong. You. I agree. Right. But it was, it's a very funny thing. And I'll bet you a nickel, since it was the first day they ever used the class, I'll bet you they changed it. Because it really, really got funny. I mean, the whole day, it just got to be hilarious. I guess the other way to, of thinking about this, I, I go back to my my ABS or lean manufacturing hat. Errors are almost always wasteful. Right. And one of the basic tenets of lean manufacturing is the identification and elimination of waste. So just from that standpoint alone, I think it's worth talking about why errors occur, the, the, the conditions under which errors are more likely, the things we can do to minimize our error rates, to reduce the number of errors. Uh, just from that aspect alone, errors are wasteful. So but they're I'm, not choices. They're not choices. They're part so, of being a human being. Yeah, and see, I, I have to tell you, I, I, I'm probably, I just think differently. But I've, I've just grown, actually, quite honestly, bored with it. It's just, I, they're not that interesting to me. If you if you design a system poorly, people will use it wrong. Right? Even wrong is the wrong word. I mean, it's a system that's difficult to use, so right. it becomes difficult to operate. But right? even in well-designed systems, people make errors. But think, think about rental cars. Like, there's, there's, not a, there's not a system that says all rental cars should have the wipers in the same place. But I bet you in nickel, if you rent cars a lot, you're constantly searching for the wiper switches, right? Yep. That's not an error. That's crappy rental cars, right? That caused you to make an error. Yeah, see, I mean, <laughs> stay strong on it because I think it's so. I, I I don't think I don't think errors errors are not the cause. Errors are a symptom. Yeah, they're never caught. I mean, it's they're hard a to symptom. Make a so the, 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 the error of the people pushing the door when they should have pulled it is a symptom of a poorly designed door. The error of me, you know, flipping the high beams when I'm trying to turn on the windshield wipers is a symptom of inconsistent controls in rental cars. Right. Um, but it's still an error. It's interesting. So the question is that the, the re the, where it's important is not that we look at the error and say we need to fix that human so he doesn't make more errors. We we try to identify what are the conditions that made it more likely that that person would make that error or that that error would have that outcome. And that's what we try to fix, not the human that made the error. What is it about the system that we can change to make it less likely for that error to be created, like put a handle on the door instead right. of just leaving that it ambiguous? It looks like you pull it. Ambiguous. right, right. right. Or how can we minimize the outcome or the, the, the consequence of the error? So that's where I think error is important. Um, if we didn't pay attention to errors, number one, we never learn where we have those opportunities to improve our system. So I think that's a lot of those errors are, are you know, weak signals that right. we've got opportunities in our system. Um, so acknowledging the fact that humans make errors, errors are symptoms of problems in our system gives us the opportunity to learn and improve our system or manage the consequence better. If you could tell a manager anything, like a plant manager, it's a manager, what would be the number one message you give a manager around human performance? That error is normal part of being human. Okay. The conditions under which people are more likely to err are predictable, which means errors are preventable. Right. If we can recognize those conditions and intercede. The second thing I was, that's kind of my stump speech on human performance. 
the second thing I would say, which should probably be the first thing, is that errors are never the root cause of an event. Errors are always consequences of flaws in our system, especially when one single human error has a bad outcome. That is a poorly designed system. And I would add one thing. In retrospect, errors always appear to be choices. Yeah. Yeah. Right. With hindsight bias, we can always look at an, an event and say, how could that person be so dumb, lazy, careless, stupid? Fast, you efficient, know, yeah, right. yeah, whatever word they want. You think that makes a difference when plant managers understand that? I think when they believe it, it makes a difference. How do they practice it? <laughs> by the way they behave when events occur. By the way they respond to errors and failures um, is huge. If we... If our first reaction when an event occurs is to look at how could that person be so stupid, number one, we're creating a culture where people are not going to talk about their errors. We're driving it underground. So those those small errors that have little or no consequence, we don't hear about, we don't learn from, we don't get to improve our system. Uh, so the way they respond is incredibly important when errors occur. And when those big things occur, Treating it as a, even the big things with big consequence, treating it first as a learning opportunity, not as a opportunity to blame someone. Right. I think is the biggest change in behavior we can try to drive in our leaders. Rather than who can I blame, who can I fire, who can I discipline, is what can we learn from this so it doesn't happen again. But in, in essence, I think leaders feel like by giving up blame, they're losing control. But like what we saw today is I would say by giving up blame, you actually They've engaged their, They've yeah. engaged their workforce engaged, to an incredible degree. Engaged workforce, you have way more control right. and way more power. And then the whole idea that it's a force multiplier, I think that's really interesting to think of human performance or these, these tenets of new view safety as a, as a way to actually make a facility more productive and increase its ability to be efficient. If you're... If you buy the fact that errors are consequences of flaws in your system, then it's a very simple question. Do you want to know about those flaws so that you can correct them and mitigate the consequence? Or do you want to keep ignoring them and hiding them until something bad happens? And if if the answer is let's wait until something bad happens and keep doing what you're doing. If the answer is I'd rather hear about them and learn from them, then the way we respond as leaders when people make mistakes, errors, have incidents – is going to depend whether the next person tells us about those minor errors, those little things, those small consequences. But if a company's under financial stress, pressure, market change, this, this the attractiveness of that collective ignorance is pretty powerful stuff. I mean, what I don't know, I don't have to fix. But that's where I think it becomes even more important because yeah, those small errors are usually easy fixes. Those big errors, when we have those big events, then we are forced to do drastic changes usually in a short-sighted, knee-jerk reaction manner, which almost always costs us more money because we're trying to do it as fast as we possibly can and are very often not sustainable improvements because we feel like we have to do something very quickly. And sometimes regulators are demanding that we do something very quickly. So waiting for the big event is almost always going to be more disruptive to your process, to the safety of your people. It's going to be, have a bigger financial impact. And it's going to make us lose credibility with our workforce because they know which of those fixes are going to work and which ones aren't. Which ones are they going to do when we're watching and which ones are they not going to do when we're at home in bed? Yeah, which is 
a great question. And it's interesting to look at that as a function of the system. So we're once, I think we made this moral judgment, you know, integrity is what you do when no one's around. And that was kind of like a good worker would have integrity. And so they do these things when no one's around. Now what we realize is that production efficiency, if the system's strong, I do it the same all the time. Yeah. It has nothing to do with moral judgment. I've become a big fan of your your quote about, I'm not going to quote it the way you do, but we, we succeed when we make it easy for workers to do the right thing and make it hard for them to do the wrong thing. And workers are like water. There are so many things in, in you know, in safety, in, you know, lean manufacturing, in quality, productivity, anything we do that success is defined as making it easy for the worker to do the right thing and hard for them to do the wrong thing. I was blown away today when they said their uh, near-miss reporting system is easy to use. Yeah, so they use it. So they use the crap yeah. out of it. And I love the idea that they said, I just, to, to those guys actually looked us in the eye and said, so we get 10 reports and nine are crappy. Who cares? Right. We got I was just like, I was yeah. just like God, how do you bottle this? You can sell that. I mean, we got, not only do we get one good one, but we also engage 10 people. 10 people. Even yeah. the nine that gave us crappy ideas are engaged. Yeah. Yeah. And sooner or later, they're going to have a decent idea that we want to listen to. Yeah. So what's the future of HP? Where do you see the future going? My experience is we have largely treated HP as something that belongs to people on the shop floor as a safety tool, a thing to keep them safer. I think the future of HP is getting leaders, especially senior leaders, to realize they make mistakes too. So everything we're talking about related to why people make errors, the conditions under which errors can be predicted, and how to mitigate them applies not only to the workers on the floor, but to the CEO and the COO and you know the plant manager and, and, and leaders. And it's not just about safety. It's about reducing our error rate in everything we do and creating a culture where it's okay to say, where we, we feel good about saying, I made an error. Here's what I think we can learn from that. That's where I think the future is. Getting leaders more engaged, getting them to you know understand that it applies to everybody on everything we do and helping to build a culture where people are confident and admitting where they made errors because we treat it as a genuine learning opportunity. Well, what do you think, huh? I told you, that's really a good podcast. And that question that Steve tosses around uh, so lightly is actually a profound shift of thought when he asks that question to a group of workers. That's really a good question. Think of a task you do that's high risk that could kill you. And then think of when it fails, what would save your life, really shifts the focus. It's kind of a double whammy. It gets the prevention thinking going, right? Because now we're thinking of the high-risk critical tasks, a task that could kill you. And it shifts the focus away from prevention of that task, although that's a part of the conversation, to a more balanced look at how we can also manage the safeguards, the controls, on the other side of that event. And that is a pretty cool way to look at that. Do you hear that little clicking sound? That, that sound I've been making it all morning. That is the sound of a telephone pinging out to a tower trying to look for something. And uh, 
I've learned a big lesson, although I knew the lesson before I started. you got to keep your phone away, but uh, sorry. Uh, I don't even know how to take it out. And the podcast is too good not to have it in. Thanks greatly to Steve Scott. This is a great podcast, and I challenge you to listen to this one a couple times and to actually try this question out in real life with your people. Just try it and see what happens. Until then, thanks for listening to the podcast. Subscribe and tell your friends. That makes a huge difference. Thanks for making it the number one safety podcast in the world. Oh, my goodness. It's such a high rank. Yes. (laughs) Even though it's a safety podcast, there's a lot of bigger podcasts in the world. Trust me. Until then, learn something new every single day. I bet you did today. Have as much fun as you can possibly squeeze into work. And for goodness sakes, be safe. You could win a million dollars. You will win a million dollars. There's a huge difference between could and will. Peace out.